Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Interesting email the other day from a man who said, Carol, I so badly want to get healthy. And I've practiced your tools. I've been to some of the best. And I'm just not able to do it. What do you advise? Well, the truth of the matter is, I'm sure he's been to some of the best, but they've challenged him and said, you're not ready to give it up yet. This is an addiction that has a stranglehold over you. And you've got to be in it 100%. You've got to be in it to win it. And so that's what I would have to say to you. Next thing I would do, I'd have you do an exercise. I would, I would implode and implore you to, to look at why you need to quit. And I'd ask you to write a hundred reasons why you need to quit. And that may seem laborious, and it is, but it's a reminder of how important it is for you to take control of your life. And you can't white-knuckle this. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Once you hit that mindset, those 10 recovery tools will work. That's my promise to you. Right? Okay. That's what I would tell you to do, and keep me posted and let me know how you're doing. Now, I hope that you all had a wonderful first weekend of June. And what I do know about most of your lives is that if you're in coupleship with somebody, it's probably tough. You know, you're, if you're in good recovery, you're trying to prove to him or her that you 
are in it to win it, and you're doing the right things. And more than that, you know, you're willing to really be in this relationship, show up and work on the relational things you need as well as the addiction. And if you're single, what I know to be true is that really, more than likely, this is all about you. You're not in it to win it for anybody else. You're in it to win it for you. And so I would ask both of these groups of people, the addict that is in relationship with somebody and the addict that is not, to create a really strong family of choice. Say that because it's so important for you to have relationships with people and be able to create that strong family of choice. Now, that can look like lots of different things to lots of different people. I just had an engagement party for my very best friend, and she is 60 years old, has never been married, and we had the biggest blowout for her engagement party ever. Okay, it may not have been ever but it was truly a huge event. And that was because somehow, someway, somewhere, she's never been married before and found Mr. Wright, and now at 60 is making it work. Now, seemingly enough, I'm going to ask you to look at your age for a minute. I mean, whether you're 22 or 72, I want you to think about how you're smarter, as a result of your age and how you're better as a result of your age. The youngins can say, you know what, I am, I am knocking this thing out early. I'm learning how to manage it because I don't want to have 50 years under my belt of active addiction. And then the old timers, let's just say you're 72 and you're in recovery. You can say, you know, One of the greatest things about getting old is that you really prioritize what you want in your life, and you don't have as much of that, oh, attention-deficited, impulse control trouble because you've slowed it down. I mean, life's really all about accepting yourself exactly where you are and having gratitude for that, right? And so... For the longest time, my friend would bemoan herself, and she'd say, I can't believe that I am 52, 54, 58, and I'm not married. And many of you heard me say that I didn't get married until uh, I was 42, and I loved that life. That was the single life. That was the most I didn't have kids. I'd never been married before, so it was all about me. But I made it all about anybody who was in my life, too. I mean, I shared shared the joy. So, speaking of joy, I'm also going to ask you, as you write down the positive things that are occurring for you because of your age, I want you to write down the joy in your life. Identify the factors that 
that are in your life that make you happy. I was just dealing with the partner eh, about an hour ago, and she is significantly depressed, and she can't find any joy right now. And I said, I want you to raise your vibrational energy. She goes, what's that? And I said, your energy. It's what we do when we listen to our favorite rock and roll music. It's what we do when we get out in the sunny sky. It's what we do when we garden. She said, oh, I can, I can, I can do that because I'm a master gardener. And so what brings you joy? Now think about that and think about three things that bring you joy. I'm going to give you a pause for 10 seconds while you think of three things to bring you joy. Okay, time's up. Now, what would you say? Um, you know, uh, for some people, it's something physical. For others, it's something creative. For some people, it's something restful. You know, whether it's yoga or fishing or painting or building. I said before, it could be music, athletics. What brings you joy? Because the truth of the matter is you're 100% responsible and accountable for bringing yourself joy. I know it'd be nice to depend on somebody else to do that, but didn't that get you in trouble? Didn't it get you in trouble when you would pursue things that you believed would light up that reward center and maybe not bring you joy, but uh, medicate, um, distract, redirect? Okay, so that's what I want you to do is I want you to figure out what brings me joy? And if you were in my office right now, I'd be asking you, what is it? And then I'd be asking you to come up with seven more. And then for a homework assignment, I'd say, I want a list of 100 things, please, that bring you joy. And if you couldn't do that, then I would say, well, when you look at other people's life, what brings them joy? And sometimes I get the lame responses. Uh, well, you know, it's about money. Money is the only thing that really can bring me joy. And I say, oh, my gosh. Money is not what brings people joy. Does it buy the boats that take you on the water? Well, yes, it does. But there are ways to have those boat trips. Um, there are a lot of creative ways you can, can do that. Join a fishing club. You'll be on a boat. It may not be a cabin cruiser, but it'll be on a boat. Buy yourself a used kayak. You get the gist. There should be no obstacles in this assignment. Now, i got to tell you, today we're going to be interviewing Lainey Knowlton. And she has worked in the field of sex addiction probably for about 21, 22 years. And she has creatively created, I'm going to double word that, she has creatively 
developed a model for couples that she likes to call couples recovery. And so we're going to be talking to her about what is that and how is it helpful. You know that couples are my thing, so I'm really excited to be talking to her. And, and what I know to be true is that if you're in relationship, it is imperative that you be able to heal that relationship. And she's got some strategies and some ideas that are very unique and certainly very powerful. So I'm real excited to be talking with Lainey. And so I want to give her a big welcome because I'm telling you what, there aren't enough therapists that work with couples. Lainey, welcome to Sex Health with Carol the Coach. Thank you, Carol. I'm excited to be here. Well, yeah, you know, you have such an impressive bio, and we were talking earlier, and I said, you know, this is so easy, and and I know you said, oh, I don't know, I'm kind of nervous, but the truth of the matter is, you have presented for all sorts of conferences across the across the world. So, right, let's get started. I, you know, I want to know first a little bit about you. Tell us uh, who you are and why you chose this work. Uh, well, uh, I'm American Family Therapist Supervisor. Uh, I live in Texas. I grew up in Massachusetts on Cape Cod. I've been married for about 24 years and have six kids, um, five girls and a boy. <laughs> and the boy is not number six. He is number four. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, I actually completed my master's when I was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, with my kids and uh, then started working as an LMFT intern when my youngest was about nine months old. Um, And before that, I was able to do volunteer work uh, with the Dallas County uh, Police Department, working with the Dallas County uh, Prostitute Diversion Initiative, and then the Dallas John School. And that's sort of how I I got into the field of sex addiction. Um, It was, those were the, the volunteer opportunities that were available to me, and I absolutely loved the work. Um, and it was so needed, um, and so that's that's how I started. I also was um, I helped to lead a 12-step group for a church organization for partners of sex addicts when I was a student, and saw how much need there was for couples work and for therapists who knew what they were doing with partners because I think a lot of time the partners work gets lost. Um, once I got started, I had somebody ask me if they had a group for female addicts, and I said, I don't think that there is one. And she said, why not? I said, I don't know. So I started one, <laughs> and um, so I've been working with female addicts and running groups for them as well as for betrayed partners. Um, and I also work with male addicts as well and um, work with couples. Well, yes, and you and I both know, because we're apps trained, that truly – when you work with sex addiction and definitely with partner betrayal, you work with trauma. And so you oh, have spent mm-hmm. a lot of time, you know, figuring out how to help people deal with their very own trauma. Can you tell us a little bit about what you believe uh, the trauma cycle is for partners and or addicts? So I think that every human being has a trauma cycle, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to understand this, because it can give context um, that can, without context, it's really hard to connect to work that somebody else does. And I know even the addicts I've worked with have said, I don't understand why I do what I do. So I think 
that the addiction cycle has its foundations in the trauma cycle. So for any human being that experiences trauma, which I think is all of us, um, but specifically for partners and addicts, I think the trauma cycle can be really important. Um, the way that I view it, and this diagram is available for free if anybody wants to look at it while they're listening. It, it's on um, my website, which is Knowlton Counseling, K-N-O-W-L-T-O-N, um, under the resources page. And if you just look under trauma cycle, that can bring it up. Um, basically, bad things happen to us. We're taught unhealthy coping skills because we live in a human world and that produces painful emotions. I use the um, Princess Bride quote, life is pain, highness, anyone who tells you anything else is selling something. <laughs> it's just, mm -hmm. that's, just, that's life. Um, and when we have pain that we're experiencing, if we don't have healthy coping skills or if it uh, gets to a place where we're super overwhelmed by it, then we have a trauma response. And sometimes that can happen gradually if things build up over time and, you know, one thing after another happens and eventually we just get to a point where we're just completely overwhelmed. And sometimes it can happen really suddenly if something really overwhelming happens, something that's really painful. Um, but when we hit that point where our our nervous system is overwhelmed and our minds are overwhelmed and our hearts are overwhelmed, we snap into survival responses. And uh, survival responses are, they are there because they help us survive. <laughs> and a lot of them are, we're born with and some of them we develop because of the experiences that we go through, um, but they've helped us to survive situations. And if those survival responses don't fix the situation, which they do if it's a life or death situation, like if I have a car that's racing towards me and I jump out of the way, that's a survival response, and that fixes the situation, like <laughs> the car passes me and I'm okay. <laughs> but with most emotional trauma, that doesn't fix the situation. So um, once we have the trauma response, then we go into a codependent response. And I know codependency is sort of a four-letter word right now in our field. <laughs> Um, because it's been used as a label to try to um, people into a place where they're being told that they're broken. I think codependency, it, dependency happens on a continuum. So codependency is just when we are not congruent with who we are and when success for something that happens to us is based off of other people's reactions. So our happiness is based off of other people's reactions. The way that we respond to things is based off of that. Um, and they aren't connective behaviors, and all of us have those. So if the survival response doesn't work, we snap into a codependent response, which usually fixes the situation temporarily, but then once that wears off, then we still feel fear or powerlessness or helplessness, and that goes, it adds to the pain that we originally felt because it didn't fix the situation to begin with, and we can get stuck in that cycle. So that's how I view the cycle. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I, you know, I wanted to ask because obviously we're talking about this cycle and and you are a specialist not only in trauma, but you're a specialist in addiction, I mean normal substance abuse addiction, and then you're uh, a specialist with sex addiction and partner betrayal. And you definitely see similarities between the trauma cycle and the addiction cycle, right? Yes, Absolutely. The primary difference okay. between the two for me. Oh, go ahead. Ask your mm -hmm. questions. They might be asking what I was about to answer. Hey, is that on your chart? Because I'm looking that up right now when I go to your website, KnowltonCounseling.com, which is K-N-O-W-L-T-O-N, and then counseling.com. Is that also a diagram? 
It is. It's the addiction cycle. And if you look at them, they look very, very similar. You still have the survival response first. It still is like bad things happen to us. We're taught unhealthy coping skills that produces pain. Because addiction, addictive behaviors happen because we're trying to numb pain. They don't come out of nowhere. It's not because we're bad people. It's not. It's because we feel pain. And so the difference between the addiction cycle and the trauma cycle is the addiction cycle is when we try to numb the pain rather than control the situation around us. So we just try to escape it. And that's the primary, that's, that's the difference between the two cycles. There are a lot of other differences. Obviously, addiction affects our lives in different ways, and it can cause physical um, dependency and uh, the effects of addiction in general spread significantly further than the effects of trauma. Uh, the trauma cycle and trauma responses. So I'm not trying to minimize it or say they're exactly the same thing. I'm trying to put it in a context so it can make sense. Okay. And so if I'm I'm right now on your site and where would I go to get that cycle? Click on resources, resources, which is at the top. Uh And then it should say handouts. Mm -hmm. If you just Mm -hmm. put your mouse over resources, click on handouts. And there'll be a whole okay. list down there. Um, one of them is the addiction cycle. We're talking about that. And then the trauma cycle. And they should be on there alphabetically. Wow. Very interesting. And this comes from North Star, which you are also part of, correct? North Star is the business that my business partner and I run. We do couples classes through North Star. Wow. And my okay. business partner and is Brian Martin. I know he was on your podcast last year. Yes. It, if I'm not mistaken, because obviously, again, you two have this forensic background, right? And Brian, he he's a polygrapher. Yeah. I, you know, you obviously did a lot of um, previous work with offenders and with sex abuse. And, I mean, you have more expertise in terms of a wide variety of addictive and sex sex situations. I mean, not everybody has your background. Now, I actually don't specialize in sexual offenders. Brian does. He's an LSOTP. Um, but I did work with them through the Dallas County John School. So that that was yeah. part of the, the attendees who uh, were part of that program. Some of them were offenders. But I don't specialize in that, and I'm not licensed to work with them. Be Brian's area, Brian's wheelhouse. Got it. So, yeah, you've got experience, but you are in no way certified or licensed to do that kind of stuff. Correct. Okay. But you are licensed and certified to talk about sex addiction and also partner betrayal and and this trauma cycle and the addiction cycle. And so I want to ask you, how can the similarities between trauma and their cycles, how can they help addicts and partners in the recovery process? So it's really hard to understand something unless we have context around it. I had a partner, Mm -hmm. and I get this question from partners on a regular basis, like, how does this make sense? Why in the world would he do this? Or she. And this particular partner that I was talking to last week happens to be a female partner, and uh, she's in a heterosexual relationship. So in that particular relationship, the addict is male. But 
I have partners ask me all the time, why would they do this? This doesn't make any sense to me. And I have addicts who come in and say, why did I do this? This doesn't make any sense to me. And so being able to understand the trauma cycle, usually people can connect to that. They can say, okay, I can get that. Like if I get scared enough, this is what's going to happen. And we can connect it to things that happen in childhood because usually our trauma cycles start in childhood. The patterns that we develop, uh, we develop them when we're children or adolescents. Um, they can develop if we're in relationships where there's abuse or a lot of trauma that are older uh, when we're older as adults. But in general, our, our trauma cycles come from childhood and adolescence. So I can say, well, when you were a kid, can you remember doing this and this and this? And, you know, what happened then? So if your dad yelled, what did you do? Or, you know, if you were scared or bullied at school, what did you do? And they'll be able to say, oh, I did this. And, um, and even partners now, I can say, so when you are, I had a partner who had her, um, who had her husband walk into the bathroom and bring his cell phone in with him. And that was one of his bottom lines because that was what he had used to be able to contact his acting out partners. He had gone into the bathroom with his cell phone and contacted them. And he'd been sober for several years at this point. And she said, I don't understand why I freaked out. And I was able to go through the trauma cycle with her and say, but that triggered something. You had been hurt by those behaviors before. And that then makes sense that that would be your reaction. And do you see how activated your nervous system is? And, the, you know, we get so frantic with trying to make sure that we're safe. Well, if you get to a place where you feel that way, but then you just can't handle the emotions anymore and you numb them out, that's then the addiction cycle. And I think all of us have some escapes that we use. And addiction comes when we use those on a regular basis to numb out instead of processing our emotions. So all of us need escape sometimes. And so when I put it in that context, number one, it takes away a lot of the shame. Um, and number two, it makes it so both addicts and partners have a context to be able to understand uh, why they do what they do and therefore have control over whether or not they do it. Okay. And so obviously the coupled recovery work that you do really takes a look at the trauma that they both may have experienced and addictive cycles of either or both of them. And it, it brings up that common language as a foundation to increase connection. So I'm really wondering, you and I both know that connection can't occur until there's emotional and physical safety. Um, mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you help them? to get into that safety zone. So in my mind, early recovery is only about emotional safety and truth. And so I focus on education about the trauma cycle and the addiction cycle. And then I focus on setting up boundaries. We need to stop the behaviors. So disclosure is a really important part of early recovery and needs to happen as quickly as we can get it done, as long as we have the support around it. Um, But, So at the beginning of recovery, I'm not working on connection. I'm working on setting the foundation so they have the common language so that they can connect later in recovery. I'm not going to, I will not tell my clients that they're supposed to go connect to each other deeply when it's not safe. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense, does not feel ethical, and is not happening. So if I can create a common language, though, so they can say, look, these are the things that I'm doing. This is how I'm doing it. Because if you look at the the addiction cycle, they can then connect it to, like, for example, the uh, Carnes' 30-task model. 
connects really well to the addiction cycle. And you can say, look, these are like my three circles because the bottom line behaviors, they can say, these are my acting out behaviors. Um, and the yellow ones might even just be the pain or the, the survival responses that we have. And the trauma cycle may be part of the yellow circle in the, the three circles. And I actually have my partners do three circles too. I have them do their trauma cycle in the three circles. So I try to bring some of the same tools in so that they can see if the addict is doing their work and what work they're doing. And additionally, so it helps to be able to have them create safety for themselves because trauma responses, unless we're in a life or death situation, aren't actually helpful for us. They aren't congruent with who we are and they don't fix the situation other than temporarily. So if I can have partners say, okay, I'm going to do my work around my trauma cycle so that I can create safety and you can't hurt me that way anymore, I can't be hurt that way anymore, then that creates safety for them. So that's the early recovery work. It's being able to look at the trauma cycles and the addiction cycles. So for the addict, it would be both. And for the partner, it's usually just a trauma cycle that I'm looking at. And it's amazing to me how much power there is in being able to look at a situation that had destroyed you previously and be able to calmly say, no, you don't get to do this to me anymore. This is what's going to happen instead, and these are the steps that I'm setting up so that I'm safe. I care about you, and I care about our relationship, and I care about myself, and I'm not letting this destroy me. And so to me, that's early recovery. That is, and you know, that's one of the reasons that I so strongly believe you can't put a couple that is still dealing with their shame and safety issues and their trauma right into couples therapy because that that safety hasn't been established and created. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there's too many clinicians that don't know that. And, of course, they think these two are in trouble. Let's get them into couples therapy. But it's really con- contraindicated, isn't it? I don't do regular couples therapy and early recovery. In fact, Brian and I do co-therapy for at least the first year or two, if at all possible, with clients rather than involve a third therapist because there's so much trauma and there's so much pain and there's so much crisis going on. You really need to build a foundation of truth and safety and boundaries, and it works so much better if you have the individual therapist working with you to be able to do that and working together. Classic couples therapy can't work until you have safety and truth in your relationship. So, okay, you said Brian and you do, and what did you call it, co-therapy? So we'll, if a couple walks into our office, one of them will go to me and one will go to Brian. And then for their couples counseling, we have all four of us in the room because we can call them on stuff, we can uh, have their back completely, we know exactly what happened, they don't have to come in and explain it to us. Both of us use this model, so we can say, okay, these are the things that we're setting up, and we know what the other person's saying in their individual therapy with their client, so we, we're telling them exactly the same thing, they're going home and hearing the same thing, we're both setting up all the boundaries, we're setting up all the things at the same time. We, So if they if they can do couples or uh, co-therapy for the rest of their work, then they can do that if they prefer that. But we don't, we'll refer them to a third therapist for couples counseling, but not until at least a year or two into the process um, because we want to make sure that we have that foundation built and definitely not until after the disclosure process, which includes the disclosure letter, the impact letter, and then the amends letter. Um, so that usually takes a good six to 12 months when you have all three of those presented in a way that's processed and 
um, has ownership around it. Not that I'd wait to six to 12 months for the disclosure, but for the whole process, the impact letter and the amends letter afterwards. Oh, that makes so much sense. And, and again, you know, you get, you get that need for emotional safety. You get trauma responses. You get survival responses, which really are the same thing. Uh, on your diagram, because I now have pulled up both the uh, trauma cycle and the addiction cycle, you talk about fight, flight, freeze, and then three that are not as common, frenzy, fold, and fawn. Tell our listening audience what is, well, go over all of them, but especially frenzy, fold, and fawn. So I think fight, flight, and freeze are ones that we're all familiar with. That's usually if somebody says survival responses, that's, those are the classic three that we know. If you Google them, they're actually like a dozen or two dozen if you put together the list of what everybody's put on there. Um, so as I was doing this, I found that uh, freeze didn't cover all of my clients' responses and that I was seeing some other things that were going on. So working with my clients, the three that um, I added to it were uh, frenzy, fold, and fawn. Frenzy is when you run around frantically trying to look like you're doing something in an attempt to distract or deflect. So like you hear the garage door go up and you know that if you're sitting on the couch or whatever it is that you're doing that you're going to get yelled at. So you jump up and you run around even if the house is like completely spotless and everything's done because you don't want to get in trouble. Um, and we can do that sometimes if we think we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And again, this applies to both addicts and partners, um, which uh, the common language and being able to look at the trauma responses and tie those together, I've really found is powerful to be able to connect the two processes. Um, and then fold is you give up and you give in. You believe there's nothing else you can do, so fine, you'll just do whatever it is that they tell you to do. Um, and the third or the last one, the sixth one, which is fawn, is you're trying desperately to take care of somebody else and to do everything that you can to stop them from getting mad. And I've seen that even happen, like um, one of my clients who happens to be a female addict, and she was married to an addict. So in that relationship, both of them were addicts. And they came to a couple's workshop that we were doing, and she knew that he was going to be triggered by some of the stuff. And so she was basically frantically trying to like make jokes and trying to make the whole thing much softer and make sure that he didn't get triggered by anything and make sure that nobody else got triggered by him and tried to soften everything that he did. And it was, and she told me afterwards, she said, yeah, that was fawning. <laughs> like you're not taking care of somebody because you care about them. Not you still may care about them and, and very often do, but you're taking care of them out of fear and out of terror because you're afraid of what will happen if you don't. And I don't think that those fit into freeze or fight or um, flight. And so I, I felt it was important to include those. Well, that makes sense. And it certainly describes some of the behaviors that don't necessarily make sense, but they, they occur anyway. So it's all kind of a survival response. And what would you advise somebody who – tends to go into any of those. What would you do with a client that did that? So I'll, when my clients ask me that, and, and that's a pretty common question, they'll say, okay, so I do this. What do I do with it now? And I, the first question I ask them is, what do you do if you catch on fire? And 
most people, I think there's only been one or two that haven't been able to, to immediately say stop, drop, and roll. Like that's something that's trained into our brains. The reason that's trained into our brains is because our survival response, our natural body's response to catching on fire is not to do that. It's to run. And running actually makes it worse. And so in that situation, that's, that's probably one of the best known and best understood examples of where a survival response actually makes the situation worse. And so then they can understand, okay, so in this particular situation, my survival response is making things worse. So you train something else into your brain. Um, so I have them come up with something, and I really prefer for it to be something that will pull them out of, it's almost like a tractor beam, sort of like like Star Wars <laughs> picture being sucked into the Death Star. You need to be able to pull yourself out of that tractor beam behavior that just sucks you in and, and puts you into that, that pattern that you've done your whole life. So come up with something else that you can tell yourself, and I'll use um, somatic experiencing so they can pay attention to where it is in their body because that shows up before the thought comes into our heads. Sometimes I'll have them go over what are the, the thoughts that come into your head. What do you think? Oh, I think, you know, I must be crazy, or I'm going to, you know, this is terrifying, or I can't do anything about this. And, and that's the first thing that happens to you. Yep, it, it sure is. Okay, so then we're going to train ourselves and practice. So if this thought comes into your head, you're going to do this instead. And so I have them come up with something. Um, and I try to make it funny because that I suggest that we make it funny because that usually pulls clients out of things. If we can laugh, um, that's another somatic experiencing thing. It pulls you out of your sympathetic nervous system and uh, deactivates that for just a second, which can make it easier for you to be able to handle um, things and think through them. So one of my clients last week, the week before, was talking about this, and uh, I, she got, would get super activated when she would see things on social media with her significant other. And so I said, okay, what can you say in your head? What can you do to be able to stop yourself? And what she came up with, with was stop, collaborate, and listen. Some ice, ice baby. <laughs> oh, and I'm sure I'm dating myself by saying that I know where that song's from. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, she says, stop, collaborate, and listen in her head, and that actually started working. She'd say that to herself, and she'd pause, and she'd calm down, and she'd be able to look at it. And then it, these, these tools are not supposed to stop you from having a voice. They actually maximize your voice. Because if we go to somebody and we're in an activated response, if we're stuck in a trauma cycle, and we go say, what are you doing? There's going to be so much energy behind that we're probably not going to get an answer and they might respond defensively and it might spark all sorts of other, it, we can't actually advocate for ourselves. Whereas if we're able to calm ourselves down and pull ourselves out of the trauma cycle, which um, on my diagrams, if you go up on the top arrow, it says, this is how you pull yourself out and it's identify your emotions, identify your needs and then meet your needs. And so if you can figure out, okay, this is something that's scary to me, this is something I need to be fixed, and then go explain it to the other person, again, that's where the power comes from, the ability to be able to, to claim your space, to claim your needs, and then if they react defensively, you can say, no, like, this really was inappropriate. I really need you to give me this answer, or I really need the information around this, or this really doesn't make me feel okay. Or it might be a situation where you recognize, okay, this was just a trigger. It was from other things in my life. And in this particular situation, I don't need to do anything about it. In some cases, that's the direction that we need to go in. But it gives us a lot more power around what we want to do with those reactions rather than just reacting into them. 
Well, absolutely, and and that is what we do individually and in couples is empower them to feel like, A, they can manage themselves, and B, they can manage their life situations. And so, boy, Lainey, you just are amazing at helping people understand how and they might be in a trauma cycle and what they can do about getting out of that trauma cycle because you and I both know when they're looking for safety, trauma is a big part of that. And, and to move them into the next phase uh, requires that they do have a sense of personal power. Now, I want to remind everybody I'm talking with Lainey Knowlton, and her website is knowltoncounseling.com. That's where you can get the trauma cycle and the addiction cycle. She has about 40 free resources on her website. So you just, again, go to the top of the page under resources, handout, and then go to handouts, and you'll just see quite a few. And, you know, I think they're really helpful for both addicts and partners, but so many, so many um, partners say, I don't get three circles, I don't get this, I don't get that. And you've got a lot of those diagrams available so that people can really see what they look like. I, I really appreciate these free resources. Um, how can people get a hold of you if they are in Texas and would like to work with you? Um, so they can go to my website and fill out the form that's on the side. Uh, they're also welcome to email me. My email is Laney, L-A-N-E-Y, at Knowlton Counseling, and that's K-N-O-W-L-T-O-N, counseling.com. Yes, and, and so, again, you work individually with folks, and your coworker, Brian, works with the other person. Do you ever switch out? Do you ever work with the addict, and he works with the partner? Oh, regularly, and especially, so I specialize in female addicts and in betrayed partners, so if it's a female addict, very often they're mine, but I have a lot of clients who are male addicts, too. So both of us work with both addicts and partners, regardless of gender, regardless of orientation, regardless of sexuality. And so as we begin to end, obviously, you, you call this process couples recovery, and you adapted it from Gottman and our very own Janice Caudill and Dan Drake. And would you explain what the goal of couple therapy is from this perspective? So coupled recovery, in my mind, is not meant to be a standalone model. Um, I think there are so many amazing tools out there. But what it's meant to do is connect the models that are currently out there. So if someone's working with a CSAT, the tools that they're going to use are probably going to be along the lines of the the 30 task model uh, that's listed in Facing the Shadows. And we don't do that same one for partners. Granted, we have Facing Heartbreak that Stephanie wrote, um, Stephanie Carnes. And so there are some tools that are out there for partners, but they're not, it's not the same language. And if a partner's working with an APSATS therapist or an APSATS coach, they absolutely have so many tools and so much individual work that APSATS have done. They're amazing to be able to teach how to connect to trauma and help partners heal. But I'm trying to connect the models that are out there. Um, So like Doug Weiss's models that he uses for intimacy, anorexia, sex addiction, and for betrayed partners, um, and even the information from ASECT, which is the Sex Therapy Institute, um, and 
being able to connect all of the tools that are out there, because I think there are so many that are, there's, there's so much that's in each one of those um, organizations that's helpful. And so I'm hoping that coupled recovery is sort of able to, to serve as a bridge between them so we can create a common language and use the individual models that are already out there, but connect them to each other to create safety and the potential for connection future in recovery or in future recovery once they have the foundation of emotional safety and trust. Yes, I would agree 100%. And I just so appreciate the work you're doing. It sounds very safe. It sounds like a best practice, a gold standard. And you and Brian just keep it up. Again, you can contact Lainey at NoltonCounseling.com, and that's K-N-O-W-L-T-O-N, Counseling.com. Thank you so much, Lainey, for your ongoing work in this field. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you for the work that you do as well. Yes. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. So obviously, she's made it her mission to figure out a safe way to work with couples, and that's what it's all about. And go to her website even if you're not part of a couple. There are many handouts that will help you individually if you're a sex addict or if you're a partner. Well, that's it for today, and as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And as always, you make it a good week and create the life you deserve.